All right, we are on the 16th session of the Leaven of Liturgy, and we're right here at the end. I think you could say this would be the last official session of the Leaven of Liturgy, although we'll do one more next week, and we'll discuss some liturgical changes that we're going to make during Lent, and we'll talk a little bit about liturgy in general next week. Perhaps uh, if you had questions throughout this whole presentation that have accumulated, but there hasn't been time to ask them, next week can be sort of a cleanup week. And I suppose we can include that with the recordings as well. But today we're going to cover uh, the very end of the service, which is called a benediction, but also could be called a blessing or a final blessing. And then we'll have some thoughts about Anglican liturgy in general and talk a little bit about the direction of continuing Anglicanism, liturgically speaking, and uh, perhaps have time for a little discussion about that and what all that means, extending into next week as well. But before we begin, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. So the final benediction or blessing, which comes in your, in your books of common prayer on page 84. So this is after the uh, current Anglican placement of the Gloria at the end of the service. And the, the bishop or the priest turns to pronounce a blessing. Um, and so a little bit of history about this placement of the blessing here liturgically in, in terms of the history of the church. So in the 11th century, it became customary for priests to say a blessing at the end of the communion liturgy. Uh, the Pope used to bless on his way to the sacristy, and the custom was taken up by the bishops and then by the priests, and then rather than on the way to the sacristy, they just say the blessing from the front of the church. But we'll, we'll go uh, a little bit back in history in a moment here, and you'll see uh, what that developed from. But as, as bishops used to bless before communion, uh, and you, you can almost... Uh, you've probably been to some churches that did this. At the same time was the passing of the peace. So we talked about that a few weeks ago, about this now thought to be, by me at least, quite a distracting practice. Uh, I see one person putting their finger in their mouth. (laughs) Of right before receiving communion, for everyone to turn to each other and pass the peace, and what used to be the kiss of peace and all that, this distracting moment, What that descended from was the fact that the bishop used to do his blessing right before communion, same time as the passing of the peace. This blessing at the end of the service takes that blessing and the passing of the peace, in a sense, the peace, and puts it right at the end of the service, which is a very English thing to do, which is to uh, remove awkward... Uh, shaking of hands and kissing of people and all that, just, no, no, no. Uh, we're right before, right before we're going to receive communion, we need some focus, decorum. So uh, in 1552, that passing of the peace was dropped. That would be the second Book of Common Prayer. Uh, first Book of Common Prayer, there's a, a remnant of the, of the peace there at that, that point in the service. 
But nevertheless, you see how things are moving to the end of the service. And uh, we'll talk a little bit in, in the future about the, the, that, that custom changing. But the actual wording, the peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that should ring a bell from the book of Philippians. Because in the book of Philippians, uh, St. Paul uses kind of an if-then spiritual guidance from which this is derived. And if you understand Philippians, this blessing is going to seem pretty incredible in just a second. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Be careful for nothing, and by that means be full of care for nothing. You're still able to drive carefully and cut carrots carefully. Be careful for those things, but don't be full of cares. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's an if-then logic, right? In a sense, if you offer with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving your requests, making them known to God, then the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You notice that in the blessing we just get the second half. Because the if part, we just did for about an hour and a half. (laughs) We just did bring to the Lord our prayers, our supplications, everything to Him with thanksgiving. So St. Paul's if-then thinking is applied right into the liturgy. If you know Philippians, that blessing will be significant, even more significant. We have just, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, and by the way, the word he uses is Eucharist. If by prayer, supplication, and Eucharist, let your requests be made known to God, What should we expect then after we've done those things? But what St. Paul says, if then, in the book of Philippians chapter 4, we should expect at the end a blessing. What kind of blessing? The peace of God, which passeth all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I submit to you that's the best place for a blessing, right at the very end of the service. And if you understand Philippians chapter 4, as I've been saying, you'll recall then that the whole service prior has been in obedience to a spiritual guidance given by St. Paul. Bring all of your prayers and supplications and thank, with thanksgiving to the Lord and the peace of God which passeth all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. I think that's pretty good. And a little revelation. It's not just... Uh, a random selection of the scripture uh, pulled out, tacked on to the end thoughtlessly. Um, it's, it's really an obedience to the spiritual guidance of St. Paul and something of, uh, if, you, if you hear it right, it's like a little bit of reverse engineering of that blessing. The if-then. We've got the then and then we realize we just completed the the if any any comments about that first part of the blessing that Saint Paul uh, promises in Philippians chapter four, and we weave into our liturgy. Yes, please, Jack. You can read that first phrase: "The peace of God which passes all understanding." Mm-hmm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. And 
Yes, and I will say, a lot of times in the sermon or in the liturgy, I wouldn't say a lot of times, almost every time, there will be something that you didn't quite understand. And if you fully understand uh, the consecration and the body and blood of Christ in that chalice and in that host, then you are alone. Because the rest of us cannot fully comprehend or understand that. But this is a piece that passes understanding. Sometimes, uh, well, that's my sermon. I'll stop there. (laughs) I could go on, but that's exactly right. And I always find it refreshing at the end of the service to be sort of absolved of not fully understanding this. Uh, It's actually sort of understood that the peace that that you receive passes understanding and keeps our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, who you will also not fully comprehend and reach your arms around and touch on the other side. You can reach your arms out. You'll get some, uh, but you, you'll never comprehend God in that way. But then uh, this, the final benediction and, and the blessing here is actually two things put together. That first portion from St. Paul And then finally, an Episcopal blessing. By that we mean, of course, the blessing typically given by the bishop. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Uh, This is the old Episcopal blessing. I don't mean the Episcopal Church of the United States. I mean the old bishop's blessing that bishops have been giving since the earliest centuries of the church was taken on by priests as the church expanded and there wasn't a bishop in every church. And you can see it in its original form on page 299 of the Book of Common Prayer at the close of the confirmation service. And you think uh, when you get to the end of the confirmation service and the bishop says, the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you and remain with you forever. You think to yourself, oh, he forgot the first part. Peace of God which passeth understanding. No, that's, that's from Holy Communion. The original bishop's blessing was the one that's given there at the end of Confirmation, just this second half. And so um, that's, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, one of the oldest prayers of the church. This was the kind of blessing that might have been said right before the passing of the peace. Um, but it's, it's pretty standard. It's a Trinitarian blessing. Be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Yes, Joe. Would not be a one-word Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you mean at the very end. Yeah. Of course you're blessed. So you could say, and therefore the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, after all these things... Yeah, I've never thought of that as, as a therefore. But he definitely uh, is doing the blessing. If, if you understand the, the, uh, the nature of the ordained ministry and holy orders, there's only two who can actually bless this blessing, and it's the bishop and the priest. If you have a deacon or deacon's mass, he will not say this. He will turn to the collect of... Well, he will say what, this, what is said at the end of morning prayer. Or something like that. This blessing is reserved for those in holy orders, either the priesthood or the episcopacy. So it is not simply a 
declaration of a fact, but it's an action of Christ's man blessing you from the altar. Uh, It's Christ's ministry extended to you. So there's a therefore, but not simply a logical therefore. There's an actual blessing here from the altar to you. So uh, here's a good question. How to end Holy Communion? And you'll notice in the Book of Common Prayer, there's not much instruction about how to do that. And this is why you'll find in in many churches uh, different practices on how to end a service. The earliest centuries had the service end as soon as the people received communion. As soon as you receive communion, that's it. Head for the doors. All done. Possibly because of persecution. Possibly for some other reason. There wasn't much time to linger. Uh, It's possible, but... Uh, a thanksgiving was added in the 4th century because we had time now. Christianity is legal. Uh, we can linger all day if we like. Uh, the Anglicans in the 16th century moved the Gloria to the end. And then a blessing after that. But still, the prayer book is not explicit about, explicit about how to extinguish candles, how to get the choir out how to get the clergy out, um, whether you're supposed to play more music, or generally what to do. It just says, after the Gloria, then the people kneeling, the priest, the bishop, if he be present, shall let them depart with this blessing, the peace of God which passes all understanding. There's no instructions about how to, how to end this thing, how to, how, to, how to depart in peace. It doesn't even say depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. And so... Um, there are different ways that have developed. I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke here called the dismissal because we're being dismissed, but the missile actually has a bunch of instructions on how to dismiss the congregation. The prayer book really has no instruction on how to thoroughly end the service. That's why you find local custom sometimes prevailing. Uh, but the, the missile says, and you'll sometimes hear when the bishop comes to the church or, or someone else uh, is visiting, you'll hear this order of things. From the altar, they'll say, depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Aren't you supposed to say that from the back? Well, they're not in the St. George Rite or our church's practice. They dismiss from the front. The peace, uh, depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. The peace of God which passes all understanding. The blessing then comes also from the front. And then, typically a recessional hymn, extinguishing of the candles, and nothing. Uh, a lot of our churches end that way, right according to the rubrics in the Missal. So, uh, the candles are extinguished and there's no final colic, no dismissal from the back. It's just over. And if that ever happens in an Anglican church, you don't have to say, boy, they screwed up the end of that service. Because that's actually how the the Missal prescribes. The St. George Rite, which is us, uh, and by us I mean just us, (laughs) says the benediction, I say the peace of God, which passes all understanding from from the front. We have a recessional hymn. And then at the back, we add a final collect. You know, I say, let us pray. We all pray again. Uh, I say oftentimes the prayer for trustfulness. And then while the organist uh, does something I call noodles, so he noodles a little bit, actually gives you a moment. This is where I, what I really appreciate about this. It gives you a moment before the, the, the conversation starts 
to comprehend what just happened. He goes up and extinguishes the candles. Um, some churches call this fire worship because we won't leave until the candles are extinguished. But I think actually it's helpful to have a moment to, to comprehend, breathe, recollect yourself. As the service ends, the candles are extinguished. He comes back and then depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. That's the St. George rite. Uh, that's, it's kind of idiosyncratic to us, but not really. Uh, that's the way I was trained, which is part, partially why we do it that way here. But uh, there, there's a, a chance as we go into final thoughts about Anglican liturgy, you'll see it. Uh, the future of continuing Anglicanism is moving a particular direction, and, and we may uh, wind up changing how we end the service. But as it is, um, that's, that's what we do at this church about how to end a service. Any questions or thoughts about that? We've really come to the end of the liturgy itself without getting into the exhortations, but any, any thoughts before we go on to final thoughts about liturgy and the Anglican world? No? Okay, so here we go. Final thoughts about Anglican liturgy, and th- I'm going to talk just a little bit about liturgical progression. You can get the big picture. And Susan just returned from the Holy Land. Did you go to the synagogue where Jesus was to have read the, the passage from Isaiah? This is in Nazareth. No, I didn't go to that one. Okay. Uh, this is a picture of, of a, a tiny little synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus was to have held uh, the, the book of Isaiah and read, This day uh, is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. That was supposedly the place, or the place they mark. So what I'm pointing that out to, uh, to you for is because before Christ, of course, there was the Jewish temple and synagogue worship. That was... That was uh, two places where you'd find uh, where you'd find worship from which we can derive some of our own and then Jesus of course the incarnation uh, and his incarnation life, death, resurrection ascension uh, is now fulfilling that old Jewish temple and synagogue worship he also institutes the sacrament and the New Testament is written there in the first century. And so we see Christian worship in the early church. It follows the synagogue worship for the word. Very similar to what Jesus did here. Is he got up to the front and he read a passage from Isaiah. That's very similar to what we do. We get up and we read an epistle. We read a gospel. We read an Old Testament passage. We read a psalm. That's very similar to, the, to synagogue worship where someone would get up and read. And so we do that. But we also celebrate the sacrament, which is really temple worship fulfilled. There is no lamb that we bring up to the altar and slaughter or something like that. Thank goodness the altar guild is very thankful. (laughs) We do not have a lamb to sacrifice every Sunday. And that's only because the lamb of God has already been slain and his blood has been shed for us. And he has instituted for us a sacrament, a way in which we can participate in that one full, perfect, true, for all time sacrifice that fulfills all of those Old Testament sacrifices at the temple. And uh, when we participate in that sacrament, truly the temple is fulfilled. Each time we meet and each time the early church met, uh, 
those two things would be celebrated, or two, two elements of a service. Our service still matches that. And even the layout of our churches oftentimes matches roughly the Old Testament temple with the sanctuary being very similar to the Holy of Holies. Um, I could go on. But the liturgical progression through time looks like this. Churches worship for the first three centuries in homes, sometimes in secrecy until the fourth century. Uh, liturgy is somewhat extemporaneous. Uh, local customs tend to prevail. And as uh, Justin Martyr will tell us about how liturgies went in the, in the early centuries of the church, he said that the epistles would be read, the memoirs of the apostles would be read for as long as there was time, and the presiding, the president, the, the presider, the, the priest would pray to the best of his capability. That was, those were the early centuries of the church. So that service could go as long or as poorly as you can imagine. <laughs> because if you had a priest who wasn't very, very good, um, you might hear all kinds of, uh, of, of extemporaneous prayers. But local customs prevail until the 4th century, uh, Constantine, and then the liturgy begins to crystallize into consistent forms because there's the freedom to do this. What happens uh, throughout the Middle Ages, those liturgies, which are begun, uh, they become, first of all, more elaborate and more universal, not so much local this, local that, every parish having their own liturgy, more elaborate, more universal, uh, sometimes more specialized uh, for a particular area or particular services, and sometimes not understood. So as centuries go on through, uh, through the Middle Ages, when Latin was originally thought to be a great help to the church, Latin became uh, a, a language that was no longer the vulgar tongue for the Vulgate for the, for the normal person. Latin was now not understood at all uh, as the church spread uh, by some. Now, you could make a case for Latin, but nevertheless, that's the, the state of things. Jonas, would you go get my uh, computer bag that has the power cord so this thing doesn't cut off? Thanks. Um, liturgical progression through the centuries, though, we, we come to the Reformation. The Anglicans take the liturgy and simplify, translate into English, which in England, of course, is the common tongue, and compress what had become, I'm going to say, ten books into one book the Book of Common Prayer, translate into English and place it into the hands of the laity. So each of the sections of our prayer book was originally an entire book unto itself, incomprehensible to the layperson, and you would go to church and essentially watch something happening. Thank you. You would watch something happening and maybe even bring a little uh, book of private devotions for yourself so you could have private devotions while whatever the clergy are doing is happening. Um, that was seen to be a, a, enough of a problem that we needed a, a, to reform that. And so the Book of Common Prayer is the result. But you see there's a, com- there's a compression of those liturgies into the Book of Common Prayer. In the 19th century, the Oxford movement in England, Oxford obviously, 
and ritualism begins to reclaim medieval traditions, including the missals. So there were several things that were trimmed out of the tradition of the church when the Book of Common Prayer was, was compiled and the, the, the tradition was compressed. For instance, uh, observing minor feast days, the, the determination was rather than having a, cal- a calendar absolutely loaded and saturated with feast days, let's just observe uh, feast days for saints who appear in the New Testament. So you'll never find in your Book of Common Prayer the feast day of St. Augustine or St. Patrick or St. Ambrose because they don't appear in the New Testament. And so those are the saints that appear in your Book of Common Prayer. That was the methodology used to sort of limit this so it wasn't so sprawling, so incomprehensible, so that the common uh, cobbler and cooper could understand and participate in the, the Christian life. It wasn't left just to religious experts, monks, priests, bishops. Um, the common person could understand. In the 20th century, though, uh, anyway, the point is, in the 19th century, the Oxford movement and ritualism begin to reclaim some of those traditions, including the missals, which are pre-Reformation liturgies. So um, in the 20th century, Anglican missals essentially combine pre-Reformation uh, missal, the missal material, with the Book of Common Prayer. And some would say the, the missals, you see on the altar this book that's much bigger, and has all these rubrics in it. It's kind of like the prayer book on steroids. Okay, so the prayer book that you have in your pew before you, you can open, and then every once in a while in the liturgy, you ask yourself, where did he get that? Or where did that come from? Almost every single time, the answer is the missal. It's in the missal, and you ask yourself, well, we're going to get to that, but you ask yourself, why are we doing this? And this is the reason we're doing this. Because at the Reformation, the compression of the tradition was a good thing for many reasons. But now that we're all reading in English, we're all understanding in English, we're not really fighting against anything anymore. The question is, can't we have some of those things we trimmed off back? So that's, uh, that's the nature of the, of, the, of the missile tradition. If you want to hear a full explanation of this, Bishop Jones has an, an explanation. Uh, if you want a full explanation, the origin, use, rationale, defensibility of the missiles, I say two missiles. There's one called the American Missile and one called the Anglican Missile. Uh, Bishop Jones' presentation is helpful. You can get it in text or in audio. In, and this is just going to flash up here for a second. But if you're really interested... There is a video that you can watch. It's posted on the APA website. And there's also the text of that presentation on a website called Earth and Altar. If you're interested in the missiles, I can get you to those. Uh, APA website's the easiest one. It's under News and Media and Retreats because it was taught at a clergy retreat. But when we, when we uh, listen to what Bishop Chad says and we think about the nature of continuing Anglicanism, Anglicanism of which we are a part... Our question liturgically probably ought to be, what is the future of continuing Anglicanism in terms of liturgy? And so I'll say the future of continuing Anglicanism, I believe, will increasingly embrace the historic missal traditions. And the question why is answered this way. 
Because the prayer book represents a compression of the breadth of tradition and increasingly the desire of clergy and laity alike is to move deeper into ancient tradition and expand the expression of the Anglican Church. You'll find uh, sometimes when people describe the Anglican Church in the world today that there are three strands. There is a charismatic and evangelical and Catholic strands of Anglicanism. The charismatic and evangelical are typically, uh, I would say, minimizing the ancient tradition, and the Catholic is typically expanding the ancient expression. If you wanted to know which one uh, continuing Anglicanism is, it's the Catholic one, not the evangelical or the... uh, Charismatic. Now, those aren't real handles that you can go to a church and say, which one of the strains is this church a part of? It's just a way of understanding uh, what's going on in the Anglican world. But uh, if, you, if you understand the Anglican Catholic Church, the Anglican Church in America, the Anglican Province of America, the Diocese of the Holy Cross, and go to a lot of those churches, you'll find we're definitely on the Missal side and we're definitely looking to expand ancient expressions of the church rather than trim them out or change them into something else. Um, what's that supposed to mean? Okay. <laughs> churches, and, and just, to so, just to show you, churches like ours are using the confidier, which is a prayer that the clergy use to prepare for the service, reinserting a ninefold curiae eleison, Lord have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us. That ninefold, you see, it's not in the prayer book. The prayer book only has three. Lord, Christ, Lord. But that expansion into the ninefold is sung in this beautiful setting. Um, we use the Ecce Agnus Dei, Behold the Lamb of God, Behold Him that taketh away the sins of the world. That's not in the prayer book. Uh, the centurion's prayer, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. That's out of the missal and the ancient tradition, not out of the prayer book. We use incense. It's not in the prayer book. We observe the Easter, Easter vigil, three hours devotion, blessing palms on Palm Sunday, doing a Palm Sunday procession, observing minor feasts and fasts. Um, I shouldn't say fast. Observing minor feasts. Uh, for instance, if we observe something like the feast day of St. Patrick or St. George or something like that, you're not going to find that in the prayer book. You'll find it in the Missal. I would say if you were to describe St. George, you could describe St. George as a prayer book church with elements of the Missal added. Some churches are Missal churches, period. And everything comes from the Missal. The whole service, the whole order, everything comes out of the Missal. Uh, I would say that the, many of our churches in the APA, but ours included, is a prayer book church. We look first to the prayer book, and then we add elements of the historic missal tradition, which is pre-Reformation. And clergy are oftentimes careful about which ones to include. And so um, while we include some of those things, other churches are placing the Gloria at the front of the liturgy, which is the ancient tradition. Uh, and the missals have both, so it suggests to the clergy you can pick. Uh, saying the Arate Fratres, which we're going to try uh, in Lent, 
which is a prayer I'll introduce you to next week. And uh, we have, I've put in the shield for a couple weeks now. Uh, other churches use a post-communion collect. You know, we always have a collect from the prayer book that, that comes at the beginning of the service. But the missal provides a collect that matches it at the end. It's not the same one. It's a different one. But it matches the, the season. It goes at the end of the service. A post-communion collect. Uh, some churches use what they call secret prayers, which sounds terrible. All it is is that the priest uh, has certain prayers that are said at the altar, and he's meant to say them so that only he can hear them. It's not that they're, you know, secret. You can't know them or something. But some of the prayers when I'm doing the lavabo, uh, washing hands before, I'd say, uh, there's a prayer that's said there. There's other prayers during the liturgy that are sometimes said. Um, when I elevate the, the chalice and the host um, during the offertory, those prayers I don't shout out loud because the choir is singing. And, you know, so those are called secret prayers. Also, liturgical headgear. <laughs> okay. It's possible to wear, and these are almost all Italian, sorry to say. There's a zucchetto, which is like almost like a yarmulke. There's a beretta, which is a three-pointed thing with a pom-pom on top. Uh, there's a skull cap. There's another one. There's a Canterbury cap, which is a, obviously a British one. I, I resist the headgear. Sorry. <laughs> But the bishops were a mitre, you know, that's another one. But I, I'm, a, I'm a headgear resistor. However, I have told myself, if the headgear is uh, essentially, not meaningless, but, but if, if it's not essential, then why am I resisting it? So, <laughs> so if it doesn't matter, you could either wear it or not wear it, and it wouldn't make a difference. But... Uh, so if everybody starts wearing them and the bishop says, you've got to wear a hat, I'll say, all right, I'll wear a hat. So if you see me with a hat one day <laughs> and my cheeks are redder than usual, it's like, yes, I'm wearing a hat. Okay. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> luggage. My hat is luggage size. It's a big head. Oh. I've, I have a Beretta. I have a Zucchetto. I have a skull cap. I never wear them. <laughs> but... Nice thing about it, though, is uh, some of those headgear actually are helpful when you're doing a burial and it's February and you got a head like mine, which is bald. And we did, Bishop Chad and I once stood outside waiting for the funeral party in January and it was cold and the wind was blowing. We stood there waiting for a half an hour outside and I said, I have got to get one of these headgear things because they make them sometimes out of wool and they literally keep your head warm. There's also a, it's called a capa negra. It's a, it's a wool cape and you wrap it around yourself because it's cold. <laughs> That's it. That's the reason. Anyhow, so if you see some of that, I have acquiesced, but not yet. Um, there are difficulties uh, when you're talking about the missile and the prayer book because at times the missile and the prayer book conflict. There are feast days that are mentioned in the missile where the prayer book says you're supposed to observe Trinity 18 and the missile says you're supposed to observe the exaltation of the Holy Cross. Clergy will fight with each other and says, why are you doing the exaltation of the Holy Cross? You should be doing Trinity 16. Well, I don't follow, you know, so that's uh, deep down in the weeds. But 
as well as when uh, new missals include feasts developed by the Roman Church after the 16th century, Sacred Heart of Christ. Sacred Heart stuff, some of our clergy would say, is heresy. Anytime you say Sacred Heart of anything, you're taking Christ and dividing him up into body parts and saying, I, I like his heart. Ooh, you know, so, but another church will say, no, 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 we understand Sacred Heart totally differently than that. And uh, so there can be some, some tensions because that's not a pre-Reformation. That's not an early church observation. That's late. And so clergy have to make decisions sometimes. And so as clergy are making decisions, the laity are asking, are they allowed to do that? Okay, so here's Bishop Grundorf and Bishop Chad. Are they allowed to do that? Okay, this is juicy. Ready? <laughs> Since the Reformation, the non-Roman church has inclined towards paper popes. Okay? We don't observe uh, the authority, we don't recognize the authority of the pope as, as, as beforehand. And so sometimes in order to replace that, long infallible catechisms are developed. Or, and brace yourself, Quranic views of the Bible that the Bible has descended, uh, and really it's like the fourth member of the Trinity. We add the Bible to the Trinity. Uh, Prayer book fundamentalism, which is, if it ain't in the prayer book, I ain't doing it. That kind of stuff, which really typically shows we don't understand where the prayer book came from, because the prayer book came from the tradition of the historic church. So you're not resisting the tradition of the historic church, you just have become a prayer book fundamentalist. That usually develops after somebody messes with the prayer book and makes a disaster of the church. So we stick to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, which is the best one. But you don't need to become a fundamentalist about the 1928 Book of Common Prayer because the prayer book came from an older tradition. You should be able to hear the older tradition And as we're leaning towards, you know, give us a stack of paper with which we can control these clergy. Sorry. The truth is discretion is delegated by Christ to bishops and rectors to lead, to uphold orthodoxy, to balance local customs, ecclesiastical canons, and the spiritual needs of every flock. So a good shepherd will know his flock and will say... I can tell that if I begin X and Y tradition, I will lose half of my flock. The point is to lead this flock. Losing half the flock is not in the cards. Nevertheless, if the flock has become hard-minded and hard-hearted about a particular uh, liturgy or are unwilling to, to pray a particular prayer or add a certain thing to the service, the clergyman has to decide, is this just stubborn hard-heartedness or have I or or do they have a point and it's it's really um part and parcel of the amazing thing that Christ did which was delegate to apostles and apostles to uh those in the sub-apostolic period period to bishops to priests to be shepherds and under shepherds uh in the church so you, you'll notice that the New Testament does also not tell you how to end a service or also doesn't have a liturgy for you. And so apparently the bishops themselves will determine this. This is, this is what we're really dealing with when we talk about uh, liturgy itself. 
This is um, this leaven of liturgy is the best that the church has done to craft and form a, 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 a means of worship that has everything we can possibly wish in it for the salvation of souls. Um, and so that's, that's really what we're talking about with, with liturgy. But, you know, some of that may sound controversial, and that's why we have five minutes to talk about it. Janet. Yes. Well, yeah. Because it seems to fit them. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is, at, at the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that the, the original Protestants were trying to get away from was something called scholasticism, which had developed a few centuries before, which was uh, a question and answer for every single thing you could possibly think of in, in, uh, in uh, theology, in ecclesiology, uh, 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 developed in in the late Middle Ages. So we were going to get away from this sort of authoritarian answer for everything kind of Christianity. But within a century, the Protestants had developed Protestant scholasticism and had these long catechisms developed. And you know which ones we're talking about. The Westminster uh, Confession, the the Heidelberg Catechism, the, the shorter catechism, the longer catechism, all these catechisms which ironically we're now replacing the very thing that we were trying to do away with beforehand. And uh, really what, what, what I believe was found was an absence of authority and the vacuum was filled by paper, stacks and stacks of paper. That's what we call sort of jokingly paper popes. Uh, you can't do that. It says on page 642, you can't do that. Which, ten- yeah, go ahead, please. Well, it makes it harder to call to worship according to what we would call common prayer. Because that was one of the benefits of the first book of common prayer was a compression of all of these traditions. You know, even in England, you had the Sarah Missal, you had the York Missal, and then there was another one, and I can't remember what it was. But, but anyway... the charismatic and the Right, so if you went to uh, some other Anglican churches in Greenville today that were more evangelical or charismatic, you would wonder, what in the world am I even a part of? What is this? You'd hear a couple bits and pieces of, of the service that you recognize, and then the rest would be choruses and drum kits and bands and screens. And, and, and you know, uh, we got, uh, does that help? Two more questions. One from, actually, Michael was next, and then Bill, and then... Uh, Debbie, so Michael. Five minutes. Okay. Comment on the commonality between the Pope's comments about expanding the church to include quote more wokeism and the Anglican Church conventions going on in England and their proposals for more woke well, and unopened church. Real, real quick. Um, uh, in the Anglican Communion. Uh, a group entitled GAFCON, oh boy, Global Anglican Fellowship of ooh, Conservative uh, Anglicans or something like that, 
the, the African bishops have really condemned the recent developments in the Church of England, and they're looking, uh, the, the AAC, I mean, ah, is it American Anglican Communion, all these alphabet soup, is really looking towards uh, the possibility of a new leadership of, the Ang- of global Anglicanism, uh, with GAFCON kind of being a part of that, because the, the Canterbury has really sort of left uh, orthodoxy. So um, that's not a liturgical question, that's more of a... a, a well, they seem to be some commonality between what the Pope is saying oh. and what's coming out of there. They're both looking to expand into, by expanding their including homosexuality, right, but, female priests. Right, what they'll do is they'll wind up tearing the church. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Anglican world is already torn over it. And the Romans are toying with tearing it. Um, so we'll see what happens. And then there's two more, I, th- I believe. Uh, Bill? I'm just going to say that if you want to see a variation in the use of the missile, if you come on Wednesdays, right. Father Stokes is doing it, particularly towards the end of the consecration, Right. So there, there's a portion that typically come anyway. Uh, there's a portion of the liturgy where the missile differs from the prayer book, and Father Stokes was trained in a certain way and asked permission if he could just do it the way he was trained. And I said, sure, because it's part of our tradition. Actually, our canons allow for the, for the use of what he uses, which is the Anglican Missal. Um, and so people who come at noon on Wednesdays will hear the Anglican Missal version from Father Stokes. To be honest, my Lent, one of my Lenten disciplines this year, you're not supposed to say, but one of my Lenten disciplines is to more thoroughly learn the Anglican Missal and the American Missal so that I better understand I've, I've just been in the St. George Rite and the prayer book. So, anyway, I need to improve. <laughs> uh, Debbie. Page 577, Right. Yeah, you'll notice the catechism is short. This isn't a 600-page catechism. But this is, and there's two, other, there's two other that you could call catechisms. They come right before, they're called Offices of Instruction, page 283 and following. Mm-hmm. Preparing kids, basically, for confirmation. But this is not intended to be, even the 39 articles was not intended to be, you know, uh, an answer for everything you could possibly think of. The, the general Anglican ethos is lex orandi, lex credendi. If you want to know what the Anglicans believe, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What we pray is what we believe. And so, uh, as opposed to 600 pages of catechism or something, it's not 600 pages, but uh, there is a benefit to having an answer for everything printed somewhere. Um, and some people find it very frustrating that the Anglicans don't have that giant catechism to answer all the questions. But the peace that passes understanding is part of the ethos of Anglicanism. Uh, you may not get your slick, glossy, straight-down-the-middle answer for your question. Sometimes it passes understanding, and there isn't an answer for that. But anyhow, um, was there another hand? Yeah. Usually it would be the offices of instruction. First office, second office, 283 and following. And I'd pay attention to the kids. If they had any questions at all, I'd answer those questions. 
But, you know, anyhow, we've got to stop. All right.